When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking about a book titled God and Anatomy, just out in 2022, published by Penguin. Um, This is a fascinating book that at once engages with, I think, something a lot of us have maybe thought about vaguely, not so much, never really examined it in the way that it clearly deserves. Um, And of course, a field of intensely researched study. So the book brings together all sorts of things. And so we are very lucky today to have with us the author of the book, Dr. Francesca Stavrakopoulou, um, who will be telling us all about her fascinating book that helps us reimagine in a lot of ways um, and better contextualize what a lot of us, I think, probably think of as God. Um, Maybe not so much the amorphous voice in the clouds as maybe we currently think. So Francesca, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Francesca. <laughs> I'm Professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Religion um, at Exeter University, and I work in a what used to be a department of theology and religion and is now a part of a much bigger department of classics and ancient history and religion and theology. Um And that context for me is important because in the UK in particular, the study of biblical texts and traditions um, has tended to take place within theology departments. And theology departments are, relatively speaking, primarily focused on Christian traditions and are very much dominated by um, confessional assumptions. So a lot of my colleagues are one kind of flavour or another of Christian. Um, now, that's not to say, obviously, that, that Christians and Jewish people and, um, you know, and other people of different religious faiths and traditions can't engage in the academic study of texts and traditions and scriptures. But it does give you a bit of context into my own environment, because I'm an atheist. Um, I always have been, I always will be, but I've always been really fascinated by ancient religions. Um and particularly by the religious cultures that gave rise to the texts of what we know as the Bible today. And I specialise primarily in those Hebrew traditions. So in other words, the pre-Christian texts that we find in what Christians call the Old Testament and what Jewish people call Tanakh. Um, So that's who I am and what I do. Um, And I wrote this book. Partly it answers a a kind of a curiosity I've had ever since I was a child. I couldn't understand why 
the God of Christianity and Judaism, the God of the Bible, if you like, was treated any differently from the gods of um, the other gods of the ancient world? You know, why was this ancient deity the only one to survive into the modern day? You know, when other gods like, you know, the Greek gods and goddesses, the gods of ancient Mesopotamia, um, when they fell by the wayside and was he really that different? And so this book basically tries to show that he didn't start off that different at all from from the gods of ancient Southwest Asia and the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and this was a god who had a human-shaped body. And so in the book, I tried to tell the story of the early career, if you like, of this deity. Um, and I tell that story by sort of analysing, anatomising his, his body. It's a fascinating book. I have to tell listeners this. Um, we're not going to be able to get into nearly all of the detail that the book does, um, but hopefully we'll be able to cover some of the highlights. Um, but there is much more um, for anyone who's particularly intrigued to go investigate in the book itself. Um, but kind of starting out the big picture, what would an autopsy of this god show? Yeah, um, I finished the book with an autopsy. Um, and in that, I, you know, I sort of say the idea of this of this deity, he was gradually disembodied. And you'll notice I just used a male pronoun there, he. <laughs> um, uh, but I tried to kind of do like a, I do a postmortem um, on the deity at the end of the book. And in that, you know, the autopsy reveals that this was very much a male bodied, human shaped male bodied masculine hyper masculine deity who had um a kind of a red tint to his skin uh he had he wore coal eyeliner um <laughs> he had pierced ears he had a beautifully groomed beard um with very very dark black sort of bluey black hair um that sometimes every now and then would become white um and every now and then his beard would become quite gray in different myths and traditions um this was a deity whose body in a post-mortem context um, would have shown scars on it, battle scars from wrestling huge cosmic sea monsters. Um, it would have shown perhaps we'd have found we'd have found traces of kind of dewy, um, dewy wetness on his legs as he strolled through kind of heavenly gardens. Um, so this is the body of a, as I say, a very masculine male deity. Um who was kind of, you know, hyper hypermuscular, um, a real alpha male of the ancient world. And so that obviously has some um, assumptions or connotations, I suppose, mm. of hyper male. Um, doesn't sound exactly like the kind of person who just sits around and waits for things to happen. So given that you spoke earlier about kind of the early career, um, I'd love to ask you about another part of the book where you introduce us to God's CV, as it were. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's so funny when I hear these things back, you know, oh, you know, there's an autopsy of God and oh, there's a CV of God. It just, I, I am struck by the way in which I presented these things. Um, yeah. So basically this we're talking about the deity um, who was who was we know him better as Yahweh. Um, we don't know quite how his name was pronounced in the ancient world. Um, perhaps Yah or Yahoo um, or Yahoo. Um, but but we tend to call him Yahweh um, today. One of the reasons why we don't know how his name was pronounced is because by about the third century BCE, um, when these texts, these ancient Hebrew texts were being translated into Greek, 
um, people had stopped saying his name aloud or sort of conventionally worshippers of this deity had tended to stop saying the name of a god aloud because it had become you know just too sacred too holy too dangerous for human lips to pronounce um, so you know other other sorts of names are used instead as is quite common in, in modern Judaisms today so Hashem for example the name is said aloud or Adonai Lord um, but this yet this deity Yahweh started off as a relatively minor storm god um, who was essentially among the sort of if you think of ancient pantheons um, they're quite often ordered as households and you've normally got um, a head deity and um, usually his consort, female consort at the top of the pantheon. And then they are perceived to be almost like, you know, the kind of the progenitors or, or the parents, if you like, of all the other deities um, within the network. And so Yahweh started off as like almost like a second generation um, deity. Uh, the high god was a deity known, generally speaking, in, in the Levant as Ale or Eel. Um, and Yahweh was probably understood within ancient Israel and Judah in the Iron Age to have been a son, um, if you like, of this high god Ael. Um, but he was a frontline deity. So the, 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 at the very top of the pantheon, you tended to find these a divine pair who were kind of basically semi-retired, you know, handed over the running of the cosmos to the, the second generation of, of gods and goddesses who were much more active, um, you know, so storm gods and birth goddesses, um, deities um, embodying the forces of you know the sea or you know the sun that kind of thing um so yeah Yahweh was a, a minor storm deity probably from the region that I mean academics we argue about this all the time some scholars think that he had a relatively northern Levantine origin but the majority of scholars and I think they're right um suggests that he probably came from the southern Levant and probably the region that we know today as southern Jordan um, so from that kind of of terrain and and area, but gradually, gradually he became you know probably you know emerged sometime in the middle to the late Bronze Age, probably the late Bronze Age, and by the early Iron Age, um, so sort of around the ninth century BCE, he had basically become almost like I don't want to say the state deity because constructs of statehood are really problematic when we're talking about the ancient world, um, but he was understood to be the patron deity of of the kings um, who ruled over what we now know as the Kingdom of Israel um, in in the Levant, which was destroyed in the 8th century BCE by the Assyrians, and the Kingdom of Judah, um, which was destroyed in the 6th century BCE by the Babylonians. Um, so by the, about the 9th century, he was sort of understood probably to be the kind of the political head, if you like, um, the political patron of those who ruled these two particular kingdoms. Fascinating. Um, thank you for breaking that down for us. Um, and it is quite a compelling term, the idea of a CV. It sort of helps us understand um, this information that I think isn't something a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, and, and I do acknowledge that I am going through the book a bit backwards. As you said, the autopsy is at the end of the book and I've asked it first. Um, and I should also note that I'm probably going to be asking um, about different bits of God's body, um, also backwards, um, going from head to toe rather than toe all the way up. Um, but we'll get there. It's fine. Uh, I don't really know why that made more sense to me, but that's what we're going with. Um, and as I said to listeners, um, the book does do justice to really all of the body parts you could possibly imagine. I, unfortunately, am not going to go through all of them. Um, but I would like to talk about, first off, God's nose. 
that you describe in the book as a body part that he was perhaps particularly fond of. Can you tell us about this, please? Um, I mean, all we have to go on. I mean, the book deals with, um, obviously, lots of biblical texts and traditions, and then equally lots of kind of comparative myths and traditions from from closely related cultures, um, and lots of archaeology and visual culture and anthropology and sociology and all that other stuff. But in the in the Hebrew Bible, um, you find the deity in certain traditions and stories boasting of uh, boasting about his nose. And one of the reasons, so there's a scene in the Torah where he's at the top of the holy mountain in the wilderness, having one of his very lengthy conversations with Moses. Um, and he says to Moses that it's usually translated as being slow to anger. And he says, I'm a deity, you know, these people, you know, my people, my worshippers have disobeyed me, you know, they've made the golden calf and um, sort of already broken one of the Ten Commandments that Yahweh has given his worshippers, you know, you shall not make an image. Um, But he's saying, you know, he's basically trying to say that he is a merciful deity, he is forgiving. And he says that, you know, so he, in most English translations, it's usually translated along the lines of, you know, I'm very slow to anger. But the Hebrew literally says that Yahweh describes himself as being, I am very long nosed. And it's a biblical idiom, actually a a relatively, you know, a Levantine cultural idiom in some ways that basically relates to the notion that the body, you know, the body played, we think about the ways in which we use our bodies to map and construct our own perceptions um, of reality and of the way in which we work, the world works, the cosmos works. Um, In a lot of ancient Levantine cultures, the nose was very closely associated with anger. That was the kind of the organ of anger, if you like, um, And it it makes a lot of sense, you know, that idea about when you get angry, this very kind of hot, rapid breathing, snorting with fury. Um, And so when when Yahweh says that that he is very long nosed, what he means is that he's got, you know, very long, deep nostrils. So cooler, slower breathing. And so it's a it's a way of him basically, you know, boasting about the fact that, yeah, he is a God who does get very angry. And we see that that snorting nasal anger in lots of different traditions in the Hebrew Bible where Yahweh blasts things with a with a blast of breath from his nostrils um out of anger where he sort of almost kind of of snots over people in his fury um you know it's almost like that the mucus from his nose is being described as a hot kind of lava um but yeah when he tell when he talks to Moses that you know he can and will forgive his uh irresponsible disobedient worshippers um it's because he he is a, a god who has a who has long nose and which means he's very slow to anger and he's um and theoretically quick to to forgive and so yeah it's a lovely image um which i like and it reminds us just how different uh these ancient cultures were that produced these texts um it reminds us of just how different people's body people under people understood their bodies to be how different embodiment itself was from perhaps the ways in which we think about embodiment in our own cultures today so in fact that's one of the things i wanted to ask you about because in the autopsy um you detail that um god would have uh, eyeliner essentially piercings and those are things that we do know about today though we've lost the idiom of the long nose um we do have those kinds of bodily modifications um they mean rather different things in this context can you explain them to us yeah i mean one of the most uh interesting modifications that 
Yahweh um, appears to have had, or at least ancient rabbis, and, and we're talking in the first few centuries um, of the first millennium CE in the Common Era, ancient rabbis um, certainly understood that their god Yahweh was a deity who was circumcised. So we're talking about male circumcision, and we know how important circumcision has come to be within traditional forms of Judaism and and also in, in lots of um, forms of Islam too. Um, but there's a really interesting early rabbinic debate about um, whether or not Adam was circumcised. And one of the reasons why the rabbis were so exercised about whether Adam himself was circumcised, so Adam, the first man, is because the idea that, you know, did God create the first human basically perfect? In lots of biblical texts, in the Torah in particular, circumcision male circumcision is a form of body modification that perfects the body. And this is in a context, I mean, we we make bodies, you know, bodies are not finished kind of products. Um, We undergo all sorts of forms of body modification um, in all sorts of ways all the time, from the way that we dress or what we do with our hair, um, obviously to more permanent forms of body modification, whether it's piercing or cutting or whatever, tattooing. and male circumcision was, uh, in the ancient cultures that gave rise to the Hebrew Bible text, male circumcision was particularly closely associated with fertility. And it was the idea that, I mean, one of the texts, you know, one of the texts that's used, um, that's very important in talking about this, is the idea that it, circumcision is the same word that's used to talk about the pruning of fruit trees in the Torah. If you prune the fruit trees, it, it will give you a bigger yield of fruit. And the same kind of idea operated in terms of the penis. So if you were to prune the penis, um, it would give, it would, you know, you'd have more children, more descendants. So it's very much a fertility, a male fertility ritual. But this form of body modification is important because it also, within biblical traditions, it renders um, a male worshipper unblemished, perfected, and therefore able to participate, to socialise with the deity, um, which is why circumcision is, is so important among male worshippers of these ancient within these ancient communities. So the rabbis debated, you know, well, when Adam was created, you know, there's no mention of him being unblemished or perfect. And this, these are terms that are used of Abraham very specifically when, when Yahweh says, circumcise yourself, so that you can walk with me, you know, circumcise yourself and all the members of your household, male household, so that you can walk with me. So in other words, so that you can have a social relationship with me. This is that very important moment where Abraham, as the great ancestor of the Israelite people, is first bound up into this kind of covenant or treaty relationship with Yahweh. And when he tells Abraham to circumcise himself, he says, because you will be, you will be unblemished you will be whole um you will be perfected basically in a bodily sense and as a result of this circumcision the childless abraham who's very aged he's about 100 years old he and his wife sarah who's the same age as him roughly the same age as him they haven't had kids all of a sudden once abraham is circumcised bingo sarah his wife conceives and has a child and that's the boy isaac so we can see that kind of fertility ideology playing out in these traditions but the rabbis were very exercised by this because they worried about Adam. You know, would God have created a human being that was imperfect, that was blemished? In other words, that had a foreskin. You know, what does what does this mean? You know, did he really create a, 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 the first human that was somehow imperfect? And they argued that that couldn't have been the case um, because they said in the text in Genesis, in Genesis 1, very clearly it says, and God created man in his own image. 
And they said, well, therefore, God, you know, Adam must have been created circumcised because we know that God is circumcised too. So there's this whole kind of, (laughs) this whole brilliant, incredible debate going on about the anxieties, cultural and religious anxieties about whether God could have created something imperfect all hinged around Adam's foreskin, (laughs) whether it existed or not when he was first created. And the rabbis decided that no, Adam was was created or born from the earth, as they describe it in one text. Um, He was created circumcised because he was made in the image of God. And obviously the implication of that is that God himself was circumcised too. And we have lots of different ideas. You know, this is an old idea. I mean, so even the deity Ale in um, Ugaritic texts, Ugarit was a city-state late Bronze Age um, on the Mediterranean coast of what's now Syria. Very similar culture, language, texts, you know, um, traditions, rituals, cultural constructs as we find um, in the Hebrew Bible. Cognate language, um, Ugaritic and Hebrew. And Ale himself is said to have circumcised himself um, almost as a kind of a fertility ritual too. So it was very, you know, this was not an unusual thing to think about um, high high status male deities being circumcised in these cultures. But it's a fascinating glimpse into, mm. yeah, the importance of the foreskin or lack of it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and how debates over bodily modifications are not new. <laughs> They've been around a very long time. Um, I'd love to move from the external, though, to the internal, um, because the book does not just talk about uh, the visible parts of God's body. Can you tell us about why God's internal organs are important? Yeah. um, Again, it's about trying to set these, set biblical idioms, um, cultural, ancient cultural idioms, um, within the broader context of the of ancient anthropologies, if you like, of the body, of ancient constructs of um, of embodiment. I mean, I'm not, I'm not keen on the word embodiment, I have to say, because it kind of implies that our bodies are shells into which us, our personhood or whatever, um, is sort of housed or inserted. Um, and, I, and I don't find that helpful at all. That's a very dichotomous way of, of thinking about what it is to be to have a body. You know, we don't have bodies, we are our bodies. And certainly in the ancient world, that was very much understood. This idea that Western cultures have inherited, actually via Christianity um, from certain sorts of platonic notions that somehow there is the soul or the, the psyche or the mind or um, and the body, that somehow these are two distinct parts that make up human beings, that that, didn't, that wasn't the case in, in ancient Levantine and ancient Southwest Asian cultures. It was very much a sense that the body, that people are their bodies. Um, and the internal organs of the body were very much understood, very much bound up with the cognitive and the emotional, much like ours are. But whereas in our own cultures, you know, we tend to locate, you know, we identify the brain as our cognitive centre. Um, and the heart is sort of more emblematic, if you like, of our emotional lives. Um, it was quite different in, in ancient Southwest Asia and, and the Southern Levant. So the heart was the cognitive organ. It was not an organ of emotion. You know, we've seen that the emotion, you know, anger was located in, in the nose, but a lot of um, a lot of emotion was also located in the belly and the bowels, which makes a lot of sense. You know, think about the way in which our own insides, our own bowels and bellies respond emotionally sometimes. You know, we talk about shitting ourselves with fear or, you know, or feeling sick with anxiety. Um, and that's because quite often those sorts of heightened emotional states do manifest themselves physically, bodily. Um, 
And so, yeah, it, we, when we look at the the ways in which Yahweh's emotional life is portrayed in biblical texts, it really hinges around a lot of these belly-based emotions. When we look at how his cognitive um, life is is sort of presented, so for example, when he when he decides that he's going to flood the world, send send a huge flood, which as you know, as I'm sure listeners will know, was is not a tradition that's exclusive to to the Bible. It's um it's much older versions of the flood myth are found in Mesopotamian texts and traditions. But when Yahweh decides to send the flood in the book of Genesis, the way in which it's described, you know, he decides to he changes his mind about this creation that he's made, and he and he changes his mind about whether to spare humans or not, and it talks about him having. You know, it's almost like it talks about him having a change of heart, and and that's what's meant. So he, he his his heart as a cognitive organ changes, um, sort of changes direction. He decides in his heart when he when he thinks to himself, he decides in his heart to do something. So it's a very different way of kind of understanding um, the ways in which cognitive, emotional, and bodily experiences were kind of mapped um, in the ancient world. Hmm. And yet we do have a lot of idioms that suggest that somewhere we've retained something of that, but probably don't, you know, we, we say these things, but do we really sort of think about them? Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? We're not, one of the things when I was writing, um, when, when I was writing about like the cognitive stuff in the book, you know, I found myself asking a question that we, I think a lot of us have often asked, it's like, what is the mind? You know, where do we locate the mind? How is that different from the brain? You know, what 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 is it? Um, and we, we have so, you know, we're not very good, I think, still at kind of, you know, despite our kind of huge emphasis in the Western intellectual tradition on science, um, that we, we still, are, the, the body still remains a, a, a complete mystery in a lot of ways. Hmm. Very much so. Um, but while our internal organs and their emotional place might be mysteries, um, I think there's probably a part of the body that we all know rather a lot about, um, but probably not a lot about God's version. Um, and this is, of course, traveling down the body to the foot, um, which is, I think, a really fascinating place to think about in terms of God having a physical body. Um and particularly in the book, you talk about feet, but also kind of the things around feet, particularly footstools. So what what were footstools? Why were they significant? Um, what do they tell us about kind of God's relationship with kind of being in the world, God's feet? Oh, gosh, lots of questions. Um, <laughs> no, no questions, but lots of questions. Um, I think I'll start, actually, in answering it, I'll start where I start... Um, in the first chapter about feet in the book, which is a, a temple in Syria called Ayandara, an Iron Age temple that was actually, um, much of it was destroyed in 2018 in a, an airstrike, which was um, pretty devastating. It's my favourite, yeah, up, up till then, it, it, it had always been my favourite um, ancient temple in the Middle East. And uh, But this temple was quite incredible. It's, it's very... Temples were across the Levant. They were relatively, not standard, but they were very similar in terms of their layout. So they kind of had a tripartite structure. So you kind of walk up some steps and enter into sort of like a an initial kind of, almost like a kind of a portico area before stepping inside a long, so rectangular in shape. Um, so you step in at the short end, step in at the, into a, a, a room where certain sorts of rituals and, and various other ceremonies would have been performed. And then at the very back 
was the inner room. And this was the place where the deity was understood to dwell. And temples were not symbolic buildings, you know, like a, a church or a synagogue or a mosque. They're quite, they're, they're symbolic buildings. They are communal spaces, social spaces where you, where you socialize, um, if you like, with each other, but you also perform the relationship that you have as a worshipper, if you like. But in the ancient world, um, in the ancient Southwest Asian cultures that I talk about in the book, um, temples were literally understood to be the house. They were called the house of the deity. Um, the term means the same thing, a house, um, a domestic space, uh, a temple. Um, and they were almost like kind of palaces for the, like heavenly palaces for the deity. To step into a temple was to step into the heavenly realm. They were the meeting place, if you like, between the divine and earthly realms. Um, and at this temple in Ayandara, what's so fascinating about it is that on the threshold of the temple, we have these two enormous footprints carved into um, into the flagstones of the temple. And then a little way ahead of it into the main room, you have the, the one footprint, the left footprint. And then just beyond it, stretching into the Holy of Holies or the, the kind of the the innermost dwelling place, if you like, at the back of the temple, you have the other footprint. And they're over a metre long. And these incredible footprints represent, or rather materialise, the presence of the deity who dwelt in that temple. It's about these are the footprints of the deity striding into the temple to take up residence. And the, temp- the footprints don't go out the other way. It's just one set of footprints going in. So it materialises, manifests the presence of this very large deity and there's debates as to which deity it was whose you know whose temple this was um we're not sure who which deity um was honored there but it's this sense very much that the deity was understood to be present and these footprints are over a meter long so it suggests that this was a deity you know quite often deities were understood to have human shaped but supersized bodies so that that kind of art that sort of archaeological sort of reference in mind we also have lots of interesting texts in the Hebrew Bible in which Yahweh boasts about the temple in Jerusalem being the place for the soles of his feet. This is the place where I will sit enthroned, the, the place where my feet will rest. So it's that very same idea about the sociality of the deity, a deity who is present in the temple among his worshippers who can socialise with them. It's about the bodily, physical placement of the deity. And it's also about the sense that this is a god who doesn't need to, unlike warrior gods um, who are often depicted iconographically as sort of striding deities with their right arms held aloft, holding weapons, you know, ready to smite their enemies. Um, Quite often you find that Yahweh is depicted... um, like many other deities, high status deities, as being enthroned in his temple with his feet up on a footstool. And it's the idea that this isn't this isn't a deity who needs to run around fighting and kicking and trampling and punching um, because he's got cosmos under his control. You know, he's got order right there at his feet, you know, and he can sit, you know, he can afford to kick back and sort of sit with his feet, you know, in, on a footstool enthroned. So this is a it's about that sense of control and power and majesty, but also that idea of the bodily, physical presence rooted by means of his placement. His actual feet are there. Um, his body is there. He is there in that temple. Um, and that's why his feet are so extraordinary. I mean, we find him doing all those other things that warrior gods do too. I mean, he has these huge fights um, in several biblical texts with a, with a, a chaotic um, chaos sea monster and there you know and, and we're told that he sort of pins 
the the defeated corpse of this sea monster beneath his throne under his feet um you know he does a lot of trampling and of of enemies including human enemies so he does all of that kind of other stuff that's associated with the power of the foot and this kind of ideology of the feet as things that mark territory occupation ownership um oppression suppression <laughs> subjugation you often find pharaohs and various other ancient southwest asian kings as well sort of shown iconographically literally trampling on the bodies of their defeated enemies um but yeah so the feet are really important and the footstool in particular marks the idea that this is a deity who is enthroned in place and is stable secure fixed has no need to get up and fight anymore he is you know he's got everything under his control Mm. yeah he can lounge back and watch everything play out the way that he wants to really yeah um, and yet, of course, we've been talking about uh, God's body uh, with the knowledge and acknowledgement that uh, this conception is certainly not what we have now. So I was wondering if I could ask you a bit about kind of that process to go from this conception that you've been explaining to us um, and the one we have today, uh, which is very much a process. It's not sort of a single moment in time that changed from one to the other. Um, and I was wondering if you could help us understand uh, your argument around today's conception of God is not only not from one moment, but in fact, you argue a sort of combination of a bunch of things, sort of Jewish mysticism, Greek philosophy, Christian doctrine, Protestant beliefs, colonialism. There's a whole bunch of things going on (laughs) that kind of have come down and resulted in what we have at the moment. Um, And I'm wondering if you can help us understand kind of how all these pieces come together. Oh, gosh. Yes, I'll try. Um, So basically, we have the idea that so what's very important to understand is that there is a difference between um, the likely historical realities of ancient Yahweh worship, which were in the Iron Age polytheistic. um, So Yahweh was one among many deities, um, even when he was the head, you know, head of the pantheon, his local pantheon. um, There were other gods and goddesses and divine beings in his retinue. Um, there's a difference between, you know, so this was a god of within a polytheistic system and also a god who was likely worshipped using images. Um, so what's often described as idols in a very derogatory manner, um, but cult images. Um, so, you know, ritual statues and figurines and stuff. In the Ten Commandments, we have this one of the instructions that says you shall not make an image. And there are lots of good reasons to believe that that particular commandment crept into Yahweh worship and into versions of the Ten Commandments, only after what was a pretty cataclysmic um, transformation of certain forms of elite Yahweh worship in first the 8th century BCE, when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, um, and in the 6th century BCE, when the Babylonians destroyed uh, the kingdom of Judah, um, and in particular destroyed the Jerusalem temple, which is this place where Yahweh was supposed to have planted his feet, you know, firmly placed um, that had major ramifications theologically, ideologically, culturally. And a lot of the biblical traditions that we have now in the Hebrew Bible come from groups of elite scribal communities who were exiled to Mesopotamia um, in the 6th century BCE. And for various reasons, which include the idea that, you know, invading um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians equally could basically godnap various um 
cult statues from their temples. Um, and we have lots of iconography depicting Assyrians, for example, doing this, like carrying off in, in nice ritual kind of processions, but carrying off the statues of the gods from temples, taking them captive. Um, and so this, there were lots of reasons why the need to almost um, disassociate the notion that Yahweh was a, a territorial god fixed in a particular place at a particular time. You want the idea that this was still a god who could still socialise with his worshippers who had been exiled off, his elites exiled off into Babylonia. So you start to get the beginnings of a, a more transcendent, an emphasis on a more transcendent deity, um, still understood to have had a human-shaped body. But this was a body that was no longer seen in the form of cult statues. And so this was a body that was gradually understood to be hidden primarily from most ordinary worshippers. It, you know, only been glimpsed in the very distant past by great heroes like Abraham, who has a walk with him, Moses, who goes up the holy mountain and has face-to-face conversations with him and that sort of stuff. So that shift, a shift away, a shift towards a more aniconic form of Yahweh worship, um, gradually starts to kind of conceal Yahweh's body, hide it more, if you like. Um, Then by the time you get to, say, the first century BC, um, no, the first century CE, which is the the era when um, sort of early Jesus movement emerges um, sometime in the first century CE, by that point, um, because obviously the Jesus movement was a Jewish, a kind of a minor sect of a much broader and more diverse array of forms of Judaism in the ancient world, um, by this point, people are reading their Hebrew scriptures, <laughs> Hebrew scriptures in Greek, usually rather than Hebrew itself. Um, and so you get with the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, you get the kind of importing, if you like, of lots of Greek terms that are loaded with particular kinds of philosophical inflections. Um, some of them stoic, um, but some of them quite platonic. And it's basically over the course of the first few centuries um, of the first millennium CE, so from the first century to about the sort of the sixth, seventh, eighth century CE, you have lots of debates, both within Judaism and Christianity, about the nature of God. Some people still think that God has a body, it just can't be seen. But increasingly other people say that God cannot possibly have a body because the divine itself, sort of constructed on these very platonic notions now, has to be completely other to anything that's in the material world. So it has to be incorporeal, immaterial, invisible, indivisible, unchangeable. And so for that reason, God couldn't possibly have a body. And eventually, that's the kind of philosophical notion that wins out um, and becomes dominant. It happens relatively early within Christianity, um, within the first sort of three to four centuries, um, but sort of a little bit later. So it's not until Maimonides in the 12th century CE that you kind of get these really stern statements about the idea that God has to be incorporeal, immaterial, um, indivisible, unchangeable. So those are some of the kind of philosophical, cultural shifts, if you like, that that sort of disembody God. So, And they're the ones that have greatly shaped the ways in which the notion of God within certain forms of Judaism, Christianity and Islam um, have been understood. Um, but, you know, there's also things like, you know, this, this transcendence um, of God becomes really important in certain Jewish mystical traditions, um, in particular, um, the idea that somehow you don't need, you know, whereas the ancients um, and pagans, as they are sort of <laughs> dismissively termed quite often, um, whereas they had used the cult statues of their gods to discern the secrets of the heavens, 
there's a real emphasis on the notion that within Judaism that you can discern these kinds of heavenly secrets by means of proper study of sacred texts um, that are kind of you know not just not just not coded in the way of some kind of bible conspiracy but but have sort of secret further revelations to to unfold if if only you're gifted enough with with wisdom and insight and divine guidance and knowledge for this very transcendent distant god um that that you can sort of discern these secrets so there's all sorts of other things that have shaped the ways in which we understand the notion of God today, but it's primarily that very sort of that shift to broadly platonic constructs of the divine um, that has shaped the way that we understand God and has and disembodied um, Yahweh himself. Hmm. Well, this book does a lot to help us understand um, what God used to be thought of and how we got there. Um, and so really does provide rather a lot of insight um, in and of itself. So thank you for that. Um, but as my final question, I'm wondering if, given all of the fascinating things you came across and that you work on, is there anything you might be working on now or next that you could give us sort of a sneak preview of? <laughs> I'm an academic. I've got a list of things as long as my arm, and all <laughs> of them are only half written. <laughs> um, in terms of what I'm doing at the moment, I'm finishing an academic monograph. So obviously, my God and Anatomy book um, is obviously it's very you know it's built on my research and my scholarship, but it's written for non-specialists, um, which was hard to do actually. You know, obviously as academics, we're really used to writing and publishing, but my goodness, writing um, a book writing the anatomy book was I think harder than anything else I've ever written just because I'm trying to make it accessible to non-specialists um and yet without dumbing down or diluting any of the the hard serious thinking that goes into it um so I'm going to finish writing I've I've been writing a book for years (laughs) which never seems I always seem to like fall off the bottom of my to-do list it's an academic monograph called the social life of the corpse um and that's looking at various mortuary practices um within the context of notions of personhood um, and post-mortem existence. And I'm also working on ideas about um, miniaturization and fragmentation when it comes to using things like cult statues and, and ritual figurines and stuff. So that's what I'm currently working on. I do have plans for another trade book um, to follow up God and Anatomy, but I'm not quite, they're not quite ready to talk about yet. <laughs> Fair enough. As you said, a list as long as your arm, I think, is something many of us are familiar with. Um, Well, if any of those come, uh, you know, when they're ready, uh, monographs or trade books, um, hopefully we can have you back and you can tell us all about those books. Um, But in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been primarily discussing, again, titled God and Anatomy, out from Penguin um, just this year in 2022. It's Picadol. Ah, Picadol, thank you. Yeah. Um, Just out so you can find it in many different places um, if you're interested and um, all that's left is thank you so much Francesca for sharing your time and insight with us oh thank you so much I've really enjoyed talking to you